Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that doesn't like to be in public and doesn't like to be questioned. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Daredevil. All right, Lonnie, a continuation of our four color facts from last episode. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Daredevil in the swinging 70s. I love it. (laughs) The 1970s were a crazy time of upheaval for Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Jerry Conway took over the writing chores from Stan Lee and then just gave the entire Enterprise a much more science fiction feel with like robots from the future and old villains suddenly having high-tech futuristic stuff, and it just all got this real sci-fi glaze over it. Wow. And even that pales in comparison to Conway's other two biggest changes. First, the Devil of Hell's Kitchen moved to an entirely different bed of sin in San Francisco. Uh Uh-huh. Second, Matt gained a new love interest in The Black Widow. No way. Yes. Oh, my God. And so popular was their romance that she co-headlined the book with Daredevil for the middle 15 issues that they were together. Like, the cover was Daredevil and the Black Widow. Oh, but they were only together for 15 issues? No, they were together for a much longer chunk than that, but they were only Mm -hmm. co-headliners for about 15 issues. I think they were together about 25, 30, something like this. Okay. All right. Conway exits the book, and one of my personal favorite writers takes over, Marv Wolfman. Uh Mm -hmm. Now, he immediately writes Black Widow out, (laughs) moved Matt back to Hell's Kitchen because he knows what side the bread's buttered on. Right. Now, Wolfman would later become an extremely well-known writer when he takes over DC's New Teen Titans, and he actually Mm -hmm. built that title to a point that it outsold the extremely popular X-Men. Wow. So he would become that guy, and he starts immediately kind of like cutting his teeth on that kind of melodramatic soap opera storytelling that he would take with him to New Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. He also introduces one of Daredevil's best known and most deadly enemies, the assassin for hire, Bullseye, a man that Ooh. never misses. <laughs> never? N- no, never. <laughs> No, he'll kill you with a paperclip. He'll hit you, like, right in the eye. (laughs) Playing cards are deadly in the hands of Bullseye. Wow. I'm legitimately shocked that Bullseye has not shown up on the Daredevil Netflix series. He is really one of the biggest, most well-known Daredevil villains. Um, You may recall that he was played super badly, like everything else in the Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck, by Colin Farrell. (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, he, he was the guy in that. So Wow. Uh, okay. Now, Wolfman bounces after about 20 issues, and Roger McKenzie takes over. This is all in the span of the 70s. Like, it's bam, bam, bam. Wow, okay. Now, McKenzie has a background in horror comics, like Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you think it is. Is it Cinderella, but she's a vampire? It is. Very attractive vampire woman has supernatural adventures i 
Okay. Okay. Just saying that out loud, I can't believe that also hasn't been turned into a show on something in this in the year of our Lord 2018. Like, yeah. Well, you know, someday. <laughs> so Mackenzie brings a brooding kind of horror mentality with him to Daredevil. That was his background, mm-hmm. and that's what he did. You know. Okay. Oh, uh, a side note for mm-hmm. for really deep dive a holes. Mackenzie mm-hmm. is also the man who created the Western character Cinnamon for DC Comics. You've heard her name before as a previous incarnation of Hot Girl who strung up Gentleman Jim Craddock and condemned him to an eternity as a ghost. Oh, yeah. You remember no, that? telling yeah. me that story. Yeah. yeah. McKenzie created that character. Okay. All right. For Daredevil, he introduced two beats that you have seen show up in the Netflix series. One is Ben Urich. Mm-hmm. And under McKenzie's writing, this is where Urich would deduce Daredevil's identity. Okay. The other thing that McKenzie introduced we see in the show is Daredevil using small-time criminals as a network of informants. Okay. Does he beat them all up and torture them on the regular? Because why are they still working with him? I was just about to say it's a little more friendly in the comic books. (laughs) Okay. Good. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that the stories did not get grittier and more melodramatic as they mm-hmm. went. Um, during this time, we introduced another new love interest for Matt, and her father committed suicide because of the strain that she and Matt's relationship put on him. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, of course, that was led to the eventual dissolution of their love affair. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, six issues before McKenzie would leave the book as writer, a young mm-hmm. artist by the name of Frank Miller came on the book to oh. work with him. Now, we'll talk more about Miller's indelible, influential work (laughs) next episode. It is a big deal, but it's much more about the 1980s. Mm-hmm. All right. Finally, let's talk about Wilson Fisk, the kingpin of crime. All right. (laughs) He begins his life as a Spider-Man villain. Oh, Created by Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. in Amazing Spider-Man number 50, cover dated 1967, Fisk was the marriage of a crime lord and a supervillain. Okay. Like, he was just a guy in a suit, although he had a very distinctive look, being extremely, like, large and strong. In fact, he looked fat, but underneath the fat, there's just a solid wall of muscle. And he did, every now and then, go toe-to-toe with Spider-Man in fisticuffs. Wow. Okay, so now supervillains. I know the rule is with superheroes, right? They've got to have like a big costume and a secret identity. So here we have Wilson Fisk, and he's the kingpin of crime. Like, is it, are is that a secret identity? Is this, do the same rules hold for supervillains that they have to have that? Not exactly. Okay, because I really uh-huh. say he is very much the the kind of axis on which you can turn from crime lord to supervillain. Because largely mm-hmm. he looks like a crime lord just running the mobs of New York, but then he would also employ superpowered people or costumed villains. Mm-hmm. And he himself would use high technology sometimes to be able to kind of stay on a par with guys like Spider-Man and Daredevil. Mm-hmm. So he okay. is technically working under a secret identity of the kingpin of crime. Like Wilson mm-hmm. Fisk is a legitimate businessman. The kingpin is the guy right. that runs the crimes. So there is mm-hmm. a little bit of that, but he does not have a costume. He does have a distinctive look which we have now mm-hmm. seen reflected in the teasers for Daredevil Season 3, actually. 
Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see that. So it's a very much a distinctive look, but it is not a costume. Okay. Right? And so I would say the rules are a little bit more fluid. For instance, a lot of your best costumed villains, or at least costumed criminals, mm-hmm. do not have a secret identity because they've been arrested and fingerprinted. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, it's not a matter of identity to them in the same way that it is for superheroes, although it is the costume and the powers that come with it that that kind of puts them into a realm the superhero has to deal with. Does that does okay. that jive? No, that totally makes sense. I was just kind of curious about that when you brought it up. So. Yeah. I mean, and Wilson Fisk really does uh, ride that razor's edge. Like he he uh-huh. looks like a mob guy and acts like a mob guy you know, 60, 70% of the time. But the other 30% of the time, he's like, giant robots! Get me that guy with the superpowers and and pay him a lot to go kill Spider-Man. You know, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Okay, all right. Now, like I said, he started out as a Spider-Man villain, but under the pen of Frank Miller, Mm -hmm. the Kingpin would be turned very seriously into a foil and kind of an opposite number for Daredevil. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk more about that next episode, too. Okay. Well, I like that we're holding things. You know, oh, yeah. Stuff to yeah. look forward to. Vanessa. Ah, uh, yes. Unlike her Netflix counterpart, the Vanessa of the comics first appeared as Fisk's wife, like right from jump, mm-hmm. and did not at all approve of her husband's criminal dealings, unlike Netflix Vanessa, who apparently considers it some sort of weird aphrodisiac. Oh, no. Yeah. she's She's got a kink. Yeah, she has a type. So, comic book Vanessa was very against all of the criminal dealings, right? Mm -hmm. And to be honest, hasn't been treated very well. Uh, She's usually somewhere between a damsel and a fridge. Like, just in constant peril. Uh Uh-huh. And for my money, the coolest thing she ever did was in one of her very earliest appearances. She gave Fisk a 24-hour deadline to give up his criminal ways or she would leave him. Wow. The deadline came up when Spider-Man had been beaten and his wife was literally in Fisk's hands. And that's when the deadline hits. And Vanessa steps Uh in and she's like, you leave that man alive and walk away from this criminal empire or lose me forever. Wow. And in that way, she saved Spider-Man's life because that is what Wilson Fisk did for a while. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I do say for a while, he came back because comics and soap operas. You know how this works. Right. Exactly. (laughs) All right. My last entry is also kind of the weirdest one we get in this batch. Yeah. Stick. Yeah. Now, we will likely bounce back and forth with Stick, finding out more Mm -hmm. about him and about his history in the comics as we go. Mm -hmm. Not just through Daredevil, but also through the Defenders. Mm-hmm. So as a taste, he was created by Frank Miller and first appeared in Daredevil 176, cover dated 1981. Mm-hmm. This is very much part of the darkening and grittying up that we will see when we talk more next episode. But okay. he's so prominent in here that I've got to at least touch on him, you know. Right. Now, to start with, at least, he's pretty similar to what we see in the Netflix series. He is indeed a mystical martial arts master fighting a never-ending war against a horrible Japanese organization that I will not Mm -hmm. even name at this stage. (laughs) It's coming, and we will talk about it, and it's a huge deal, but not today. Okay. All right. He is very mysterious, and according to him, was born blind, 
but developed his other senses to near superhumanly acute levels and even developed a sort of distance sense that is mm-hmm. nowhere near as detailed as Daredevil's radar. Yeah. But does compensate somewhat for his lack of sight when it comes to fighting. He knows when people mm-hmm. are close to him and he knows exactly how many they are and exactly how far away they are. You know, it lets him give a very close situational awareness. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the comics, he took his name from the long wooden staff that he uses as his primary weapon. Mm-hmm. And he also uses it as his cane, being a blind man. Right. Mm-hmm. He did train young Matt Murdock in controlling his superhuman senses, mostly by training him in esoteric martial arts disciplines that focused on mm-hmm. self-control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is some of the explanation for how Matt is able to trail people by the sound of a very specific watch or, you know, by their scent or right, something like that. Right. Like he's able mm-hmm. to tune everything else out because it's basically a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. If he couldn't tune everything else out, he'd never be able to concentrate on anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, as we see in the end of Stick's first appearance, he is also a member of a shadowy organization of at least two. But we'll have to wait and see what or who that organization is later. Also, its purpose and all the other ways that Stick intersects with Matt Murdock's life. That's all for the future episodes. Okay. All right. Well, that's really going to be interesting. But before we talk about Stick, we got to start with episode one, which is World on Fire. In World on Fire, Matt takes care of Claire in the morning after her attack, and things get all smoochy despite the fact that he's an obsessed vigilante and she can't move most of her body without searing pain. Meanwhile, Wilson Fisk is feeling that morning after shame about taking the guy's head off with his car door. But the remaining cast of The Old and the Dangerous is like whatevs when they hear that their portion of the pot just got a little bigger except for Leland Owsley who has to dart off to change his shorts a woman named Mrs. Cardenas comes to the office Matt, Foggy, and Karen listen to her story of being bullied out of her home by her corrupt landlord who wants to upgrade the apartments and make a killing Matt leaves Foggy and Karen to handle the case because his schedule is all filled up with obsessing over Russians turns out Foggy is both a goofball and a tough lawyer and they finish up the night at Mrs. Cardenas's fixing the plumbing, only to discover that Mrs. Cardenas was fixing up things of her own, and she leaves them alone in a romantic candlelight dinner for two. Meanwhile, Matt's obsession with the Russians leads him to their warehouse, which is of course full of guns and drugs and orphaned kitten pelts, because we need to know that these guys are bad. Inside, a guy who apparently has a trustworthy face tells Vladimir that the masked man and Fisk are in cahoots, and Vladimir believes him because apparently you can survive a really long time in the organized crime game, even if you're dumb as a stump. Daredevil is outside beating the tar out of Dirty Cop when the building, along with every other Russian-owned building in Hell's Kitchen, just blows up. The explosions hit in the middle of Karen and Foggy's romantic candlelight dinner, spraying them with shards of glass and seriously ruining the mood. At the same time, Wilson Fisk is enjoying a romantic-slash-creepy dinner with Vanessa, the art gallery dealer. She's smart enough to know he's bad news and brings a gun, but stupid enough to give it to him when he asks for it. He gives her a whole song and dance about being the man who will clean up the city, ends justify the means, do you like my wall mural of poor, misunderstood Niccolo Machiavelli, that kind of thing, and then they watch the city burn in the distance as he tells her he blew up the Russians because they kidnap kids, and not because one of them embarrassed him on his last date with her. She does not run away screaming, which means she's either worse than he is or dumber than Vladimir. 
Fingers crossed for option A. Daredevil wakes up from being knocked out by the explosion and finds an injured Vladimir escaping the burning building, telling his buddy about how he's going to kill the masked man for killing his brother. Daredevil jumps on them and starts beating the tar out of Vladimir. And just as he's about to land a punch for Claire, the cops move in, guns drawn, telling him to put his hands in the air, and we cut to black. World on Fire was written by Luke Calto and directed by Farron Blackburn, the greatest name I have ever heard. That's pretty good. <laughs> Calto was a story editor for season one and an executive story editor for season two. Blackburn will be back to direct one more episode of Daredevil later this season, Nelson versus Murdoch. All right. So here we are. The world is on fire. Joshua, what do you think about this? Did you like this episode? I really like this episode. I, mm-hmm. I'm i really liking all of this series Again, like on my rewatch, we we are about Mm -hmm. to run headlong into some of my, oh, for crying out loud episodes. But at (laughs) least here with the world being on fire, I'm here for it. What about yourself? This is still your first go through. Are you loving it? I am actually really enjoying it. Yeah, like it's a good show. I think it's well written. It's dark and it's gross, you know, yes. <laughs> like there's just way too much, you know, like we talked about the Foley work last week and just like all the gross, squishy, bone cracking, you know, meat grinding kind of stuff. I, I I don't have a lot of patience for that. But overall, I'm really enjoying the story. I mean, I love we've got this whole opening with the, the meeting of the five families, although I guess it's four families now because yeah. the Russians are you know, gone. Um, but we have, you know, Wilson Fisk there meeting with all of these people, like trying to calm stuff down. You know, yes, I took this guy's head off with my car, but really it's fine. You're all going to get a bigger piece of the pie now. He's doing all this, like, you know, wheeling and dealing with these people. And it is just so funny and I can't help it. And I don't know if I'm supposed to, and I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but I kind of love Leland Owlsley. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is the only bad guy with any personality, really. I mean, I mean, he, Fisk has one, but oh, it's Gal. the expected one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, exactly. And Madame Gal yeah. will get some in this batch. But right now, right. they're all furniture mm-hmm. except for Owsley. I know. But who is so spectacular. Funny. Yeah. He's like, Vladimir isn't exactly a hug it out kind of guy. Right. Like, he's freaking out about Vladimir. Um, he's like, mass vigilantes, crazy Russians. I'm getting my stun done out of the storage. You know, and I just, I love him through this whole thing. He's cracking me up. I still think Nobu is hot. I can't help it. <laughs> so overall, I'm really enjoying, like, the the five families. I think they're fun. I like I like Madame Gao. Madame Gao's quiet. We haven't seen much from her, but I think the actress is really, like, doing something with, with very, very little. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing more of her. She's very Good cool. news, you do get it. She's great. Yay! Yeah. Yay! So I really like that we've got, you know, these these bad guys that I love that Leland has personality. Leland cracks me up every time I see him. And the thing is, he represents everything I hate. Old white guy patriarchy is the worst, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And yet, I love this guy. Well, I mean, you don't want to hang out with him. No. Right. That's no. the difference. I mean, he's You're terrible, enjoying the but he's antics. Funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying the character. I'm enjoying the character. I'm not like he's he as a as a human person would be a nightmare. But you know, but as a character, I think he's a lot of fun. So I'm really enjoying like the the bad guy stuff. Cause I think Wilson Fisk, like I like him in small doses. 
the more time I spend with Wilson Fisk, the more I'm like, dude, you're just weird. That's just like, there's just something weird and wrong with you. And it's just weird, you know? Um, so I like him when we get less of him because the more we get of him, the less threatening I find him and the more just like strange. So, um, so yeah, Wilson Fisk doesn't really work that well for me, but I love these, I love these guys. And I think Nobu is, is truly seems dangerous. Like Nobu seems like serious business. No, no. But it's that's... possible because he just doesn't say much, you know? You're reading it exactly right. Like Nobu is okay. just like mm-hmm. scowling and just like, okay, yeah. that guy could kill everyone in this room probably except for this oh, scary sure. old lady. But he would also <laughs> be smart enough not to try, you know? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You're And Gao is just like, everybody measure whatever parts of your body you like. I have seen it all. It's fine. You know, exactly. Yeah. She has yeah. no patience for any of it. So I'm really enjoying the five families. I think they're a lot of fun, even though it's four families now, I guess. Um, I, I like this whole thing that we're doing, you know, with this reflection between Matt and Wilson Fisk. Yes. You know, yes. we have um, we have Matt in, uh, you know, in the early scene with Claire where they're kind of talking about his whole vigilante thing. And he's I need to be the man this city needs. Like he's got this whole obsession obsessive thing about you know he's going to be the one to like clean up all the problems and everything and then you know we see a little bit later with um with Wilson when he's on his date you know and he's talking about um you know him seeing himself that way too he's like I've Mm -hmm. done things I'm not proud of I've hurt people I'm gonna hurt more I take no pleasure in hurting people but this is what this city needs I'm gonna I'm gonna you know save this city so I mean you know Wilson Fisk the way that he's doing things is you know obviously hugely corrupt you know um and and he's you know doing a lot of bad things in order to do that but I think that if you look at Matt like they're not a million miles apart yeah that's true. You know, I mean, th- that's that's very much the opposite number nature that they are going to pull from Miller's stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, where they start to really get that contrast of both being um, and now they, they do it a little bit different in the comic books because Wilson Fisk runs New York. Whereas, right. you know, they're really zeroing in on Hell's Kitchen here. But I mm-hmm. think they do a fantastic job of that. And, and in fact, you may recall my biggest complaint and only complaint so far is they took mm-hmm. too long to get to the point with Fisk. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, they should have been doing this contrast between them in episode one, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. And I'm loving it now that we have it. You know, yeah. we're going to see that as we move through these episodes that we're talking about today. We're going to see that they are hitting that hard. Like, that is deliberate. They know exactly what they're doing. And I like it. I like it because Matt is highly questionable. His choices are highly questionable. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a hero. He's trying, like he means well, you know, but he is, he does things that are, you know, that are, that are a real problem. And unlike in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., when Philip Coulson does things that are questionable, we're like, are we supposed to think that's bad? Because that's bad, right? Like we're supposed to think that, you know, and it's very (laughs) unclear. Here, I I feel like, and of course I haven't watched the whole season yet, but I feel like they know it's bad and they're, they're absolutely doing that deliberately. Or they at least know it's, I think questionable is a better word than bad because clearly Matt's helping people. Well, yeah. I mean, he's saving innocent people. He's trying, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but but some of the stuff he does and he gets darker and darker and darker mm-hmm. as he gets more obsessed. And I really, really kind of like that. Um, the moment, the romantic moment with him and Claire, I thought was kind of fun. Like, I actually kind of like him and Claire. And I do remember getting a slightly spoilery hint from you last time that that's not going to be a thing. 
Uh, it will not be a long-term thing. I'm sorry to tell you. Oh, okay. That's but I right. but I may have given you that in the four color facts. That's where I may have accidentally spoiled that. Oh, so, yeah. No, I remember you saying something. I was like, oh, okay. Because I thought I saw yeah. something and then they were kissing. And I was like, wait a minute. Joshua said they weren't going to do this. <laughs> they are not going to. They're going to do it a little, right? They're going to do it a little. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what we will learn throughout all of these series is that Claire is the smartest person in the room Yeah, and she is going to go, yeah, that guy's not good for me. Oh, good for her. Uh-huh. Good yeah. for her. Cause as I'm watching Vanessa on this date with Wilson Fisk, great God. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so weird, you yes. know? And I mean, the thing is like, I, I'm, I'm interested Kind of, you know, in this in this weird sort of side eye way, you know, um, she goes in on this date and I, I don't want her to be like this constantly damseled, like, you know, she's going to be the, like the fridging and the damseling yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And when she had the gun, I was like, yeah, baby. All right. Now we got a player. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she's going to stand toe to toe with this guy. And then he takes her gun. You know, and that's her power. That's what she's got. And I'm just like, I'm I'm very curious about her. I don't have a really strong, like, read on her. But I want her to be, like, twice his evil. Um, you know? I get you. Yeah. And I, and I will see if you wind up in a place where you feel good about Vanessa, or at least somewhat satisfied i think at this point you really need to be reading that instead of uh she has a kink i'm not exactly sure what the name of it is right like (laughs) but she is into dudes that she should probably not be into but who are just like really powerful and also probably weird or awkward right because the way she describes her interaction with that prince yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, she says that it's a line that worked on her, even though she knew it was a line. And then I was like, mm-hmm. these are questionable life choices. I mean, look, if you are attracted to somebody, go. Right. Right. But this dude in an ascot is going to step yeah. to you and drop this. Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Bullshit. Right. Uh, <laughs> and you're going to be like, yeah, but he's a prince. OK, fine. But it sounds like right. she's, you know, she has needs. Yeah. That she's filling yeah. in particular ways, which is I fine as long as she's self aware about it, you know? <laughs> because Ascot, like, she likes weird. I think the weirder the guy is, the more interested she's going to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I do like this moment, though, when she says, We've been sitting here talking for hours and you're going to insult me. Like, I don't know what you really do. Right. I like that she calls him out. Mm-hmm. I know you're a dangerous man. That's why I brought a gun to a dinner date, you know? Yeah. Like, I love all of that about her. And then, but then when she gives him the gun, I'm like, no, no. You walked into this date. And I'm just going to tell you, all the all the girls out there who are currently single, who are out there dating, if you go on a date with a man who says, I don't like to be in public and I don't like to be questioned, turn around and leave. That is never going to end well. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah. be into whatever you want to be into, but also know that's a dangerous situation you're in, Vanessa. Right. No, this is this is not going to end well. You know, and then he's talking about all these things he's going to do for the city. And you see that reflection with him and with Matt, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and it was really kind of cool. So, like, I while I have serious reservations about Vanessa, I think I like her. 
I want her to be like, I like that she called him out. Mm-hmm. I like that she's smart. I like that she knows exactly what she's, or I think mostly what she's getting into. As she's watching the city burn with him. Right? right? Like it's a romantic fire that they have yes. a bearskin rug in front of. What? Exactly. Like she is into it, you know? So, I mean, like, you know, you do you, girl. But it's 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 weird. And I'm, my jury's out on this whole whole thing with Vanessa we have to see how they finish that up so we'll see at the end I will I will you know decide how I feel about that but right now I, my jury is very very seriously out but you're intrigued um, which is really the most I important am. thing at the beginning of their story right so I am intrigued yeah and I think that it's well written and it's definitely interesting and she's not you know she's not just like this dumb you know, like pretending that everything's fine. Like she knows what he is and she likes what he yes, is. And, yes. you know, for that. Okay. Fair enough. Unlike Foggy and Karen, which is something that needs some discussion. Sure. Because... Let's chat about Foggy and Karen. <laughs> okay. Cause here's the thing. Like, and again, like I haven't seen it all. I don't know where it's going. Um, I like Foggy. I really like Foggy. I think he's adorable. He's really sweet. I like the way that he is with Mrs. Cardenas. I love the way that he slaps down that horrible, uh, <laughs> what did she call her? The meat grinder and the pencil skirt, yes. right? Um, I love the way he handles her. Yes. I love everything. I love the fact that he can be tough and smart and vulnerable, like all at the same time. So Foggy right now is my guy. Like, I love this guy. Right you know? now. Um, that is right an, now. That is exactly the way you should be right to foggy like i'm with you okay. right now i unfortunately know the future that's all i'm saying okay all right well then i'm very sad to hear that but for the moment i'm well, gonna enjoy foggy the, it may not sour you on foggy the way that it did me we'll get there okay so, we'll get there that's yeah. fine but yeah what, as far as he, now problem? he's fantastic yeah i mean he's fantastic karen however like karen all right first of all they're on this date right he says, oh, this is a date. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's a date. And she's being all flirty with him. And it seems like she likes him. Uh-huh. Right. But then she brings up Matt. Yeah. And then, like, it's so clear. It is so clear that Foggy is into her. Yeah. Right. Yes. So when she says, I want you to touch my face because she wants him to report to her what Matt sees uh-huh. if Matt ever touches her face. And it's really about using him to get info on Matt, it yes. seems. And yet, you know, here she is spending the day with this guy who just like, you know, killed that girl at the at the um, lawyer's office. Right. right. Comes in, does the plumbing for Mrs. Cardenas, rolls up his sleeves, gets shit done like Foggy is the guy. Matt is like everything that she's seen of Matt has not been that interesting. Like, why? Why would she be into Matt when there's Foggy? Like, Foggy is awesome, you know? I'm not going to argue so, with this. I mean, Matt is a good-looking yeah. dude. But who cares? But that's really it. Good looks yeah. are nothing. It's who a person is, you know? Good looks will fade, but character stays with you, you know? And, and to be honest, if she were into... God, I wish they'd just name him the man in the mask. If she were into that the guy... The man in the mask, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I would get it. Right, because he saved her life. He saved her life, yeah. And Mm -hmm. and he's very, you know, he's dashing. She knows nothing, which makes it easier to fixate on somebody. Exactly, exactly. Because you get to assign all those qualities to them. Yeah. And to be honest, that would make her a better opposite number to Vanessa. I know he's dangerous, and I'm interested anyway. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. With the added bonus of us knowing that the man who is the opposite number of Wilson Fisk, we know is also Matt Murdock, but she doesn't. Like, that's secret identity shenanigans that's fun. Yeah. No, that could be really but fun. But her just being into but Matt it- is like, so he's cute. I get it, but damn. Look at Foggy. Well, yeah. Being into Matt, but like leading Foggy on. Oh, the worst. she knows. I mean, she's dumb. Like, I'm going to talk about how dumb Karen is. This whole episode for me is going to be about dumb Karen. But I mean, <laughs> but she knows that it's he's clearly into her. He is not playing games with her. He is being straightforward. Like, he's clearly into her. Mm-hmm. And she acts like she's into him. Which means that she is leading him on yes. and then using him to like, it's not good. It's not good. It's one thing to be dumb, but to do that to Foggy, I don't think so, right? So you may have noticed that this is very much your noir superhero. Yes. You know, like mm-hmm. I've talked about superheroes can sort of absorb almost any other genre and just work with it, you know. Mm-hmm. This is your conflicted, corrupted hero. Like, even if you don't Mm -hmm. think there's something wrong with Matt, Matt thinks there's something wrong with Matt, right? Matt's kind of right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And there's no way anybody comes out of this clean. You know, that that's the noir story. And from that perspective, Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, great. Even Karen, this otherwise fresh faced, you know, off the truck hayseed. Yeah. (laughs) In this way, at least, is using Foggy who is the only person who might come out of this clean, like the only guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, wow. I never really warm to Karen, and it just gets worse the longer we go. Okay. But this is a Mm -hmm. good example of why. She is just, like, kind of rotten. Yeah, I don't I don't care for that um, because she's she's like obviously clearly messing with Foggy and I love Foggy at this point. He's he's like my favorite thing. So, yeah, it's not good. Um, There was some other stuff with identity and power names. I'm going to move that into the next uh, episode to talk about because we do so much with names in the next episode. Okay, sure. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit, even though it's not a big part of necessarily the story, but it was such a great sequence, was the the sequence in the back of the car with the blind Chinese guy singing that folk song. Yes. And then it's... It's so beautiful. First of all, that folk song was beautiful. I looked it up, and I'm going to absolutely like destroy the name. I I, I can't pronounce it, but it it looks like it's Kong Ding Kinji, maybe, okay. um, which is the name of it. But it's an old Chinese like folk song, like love story, and it's it's so beautiful. And as he's singing it, I'm like, oh my god, I love this song, you know. And we do this really fun kind of twirly thing with the camera, and I was listening with my headphones on, mm-hmm. and you his singing moves with the camera like through the headphones yeah. so first it's in one ear and then it's in the other it's so beautifully done and i love that whole thing like as they go in and then you hear all this ruckus and then there's you know and then daredevil comes down we're in the car and we're looking through the back window daredevil comes down beats the hell out of him it's not as good as the fight scene where he was rescuing the kid and he's we just see the hallway right but it was cool in that way and i loved the way that it was shot um i felt really terrible when this blind Chinese guy I mean obviously he's mixed up in organized crime but still he sings beautifully you know gets shot in the back of the head um, so there's there's so, the measure let's ask Lonnie now so exactly. what, what outweighs what drug mule beautiful voice 
beautiful not just a beautiful, a beautiful voice but but a, the choice of song that he sung you know like if he was singing a really nice like boys to men like singing that really well I would have been like all right shoot him in the head but it was just this lovely Chinese folk song and it was so beautifully rendered and just like the way he was singing I loved it I loved it so um so I really liked I like that when we do these fight scenes because fight scenes everybody knows this is not a surprise bored the hell out of me like I just don't care yeah um they so need to, so they need to have a story and right shot nicely yeah I mean that's right. that's what we're we're coming I mean this is the thing I've I've sort of always said and it's I always suspected about you is that you'll you like them mm-hmm. when there's a story going on you know if there's something happening yeah. yeah if there's a story happening if it's moving the story if there's something you know um like fight scenes and sex scenes honestly like i'm, I'm bored by them just in general <laughs> you know it's um, all about the so, acrobatics in both right it, right it is and it's not like this there's not much happening with the story so it's all about this like you know momentary experience or whatever and i'm like no give me the story and i understand narrative is my primary value right Mm -hmm. so just because i don't like it doesn't mean like everybody always gets upset when you don't like something like just (laughs) because i don't like it doesn't mean you can't like it i don't like it i don't care for it i want the story like i'm there for the story so um but i did love that that sequence i thought it was really beautifully shot and i love the song that they had um and it was it was just was really great well and i think there is a story being told in that scene with the actual Mm -hmm. fight the action Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's also like a microcosm of our bigger story you have three of the threads of hell's kitchen ramming into each other in that scene in their own very unique ways Mm -hmm. the blind drug mule is very much a madam gao stand-in Right. Like, right. He's just Mm -hmm. doing whatever he wants to do. And it is kind of elegant and beautiful. And who cares what's Mm -hmm. going on around him? The Russian guys Mm -hmm. are just like blunt instruments, you know, Mm -hmm. and they make him shut up and they want him to tell him things, even though he doesn't speak English. And it's just, you know, straight ahead, straight ahead. And then Mm -hmm. Daredevil wrecks them. I mean, it's really it's a small picture of the bigger picture. And that's shot beautifully. It's very good. It's very good. Yeah. No, it's very cool. But then, of course, like, you know, here we have this detail that this this drug mule is blind. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of a reflection of Matt. Yes. And of course, it gets shot in the back of the head. And I'm like, OK, so what does that mean? You know, <laughs> like parts of Matt are slowly dying as he pursues this obsession. Like, um, I don't know. That's it's, a reasonable it's guess. Really, <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. It's really interesting. I got to say, I liked World on Fire. I thought it was a really good episode. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's excellent. We see the escalation of kind of everything on multiple fronts. Yes, we do. And we end sort of on a pretty much on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Right. We're ending on a cliffhanger. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, they've got the um, the guns drawn on Matt and we move into Condemned. In Condemned, we open with Daredevil being cuffed by the cops. But it turns out they're dirty, which is not a surprise. It's Hell's Kitchen, but whatever. They shoot Vladimir and are about to shoot Daredevil when he takes out half a dozen armed cops with nothing but his bare fists and the righteousness of a vigilante gone wild. He drags the wounded Vladimir into an abandoned warehouse where he then tortures him for information because obviously that's what good guys do. 
Ben Urich is in the office pondering his serial killer wall when news of the explosions come in and he recognizes the addresses is all under Russian control. So he rushes out to follow up on the lead. Meanwhile, in the warehouse, Vladimir is bleeding out, but he hasn't given up a name yet. So Matt calls Claire and has her walk him through cauterizing the wound with a road flare. Then he gives her a dramatic goodbye because he's pretty sure he's about to die, but at least he didn't break up with her by text. So there's that. Outside the warehouse, a young cop named Sullivan hears Vladimir screaming in response to Daredevil's tender medical ministrations. And he goes inside to check it out. Daredevil beats him up and tells him to tell Dispatch that everything's okay, but Sullivan tells them that they got a hostage situation going on. Instead of taking the walkie-talkie away and turning it off, Daredevil knocks him out. Because that's what the good guys do. The cops surround the warehouse, and that's where Yurik finds Blake, the dirty cop that Daredevil was beating the snot out of when the warehouse blew up. He's a dick to Yurik, and despite a hostage situation going on, he doesn't seem to be negotiating with anyone. And Yurik takes out his pencil to write that down. At the hospital, Foggy and Karen get Mrs. Cardenas medical attention before realizing that Foggy has also been skewered by some flying glass, and he's admitted as well. They call Matt get no answer, and worry. In the warehouse, Daredevil duct tapes Sullivan to a pole and freaks out while Vladimir taunts him with, we are not that different, you and I, philosophical talk. From his limousine, Fisk calls Daredevil and asks really nicely if he'd kindly ice Vladimir for him, but Daredevil refuses because he's not a killer. So it's plan B, send the cops in and frame Daredevil for the explosions and all the dead cops. As the cops close in, Vladimir and Daredevil know they gotta bounce, so they work together to escape to the tunnels. In the tunnels, Vladimir finally gives up the name of Fisk's money guy, Leland Owsley, and stays back with a machine gun to butch and Sundance this shit while Daredevil escapes. Condemned was written by Joe Pekaski and Marco Ramirez, and was directed by Guy Ferland. Pekaski wrote In the Blood, the fourth episode of season one, and this is the last episode he writes for Daredevil. Ramirez wrote six episodes of Daredevil over the first two seasons. We saw his last work in Rabbit in a Snowstorm. This is the only episode of Daredevil directed by Furland. All right, so Condemned is essentially the second half of World on Fire. I mean, this is one story, you know, like told in two halves. And so one of the things that we get, um, and this is something that we started kind of in World on Fire, but that we're moving into with this, is, is we're constantly talking about names and the power of names. And whenever Daredevil has anybody, you know, he's constantly like, you know, torturing them for information. It's always, give me a name, give me a name. Like mm-hmm. he needs another name. It's like, he's like, he's, you know, he's a drug addict on names and he just needs another hit, you know? <laughs> um, but I think that that's really interesting though, uh, because we also had this thing, you know, in the early episodes where, you know, your employer and nobody could call Fisk by his name and God forbid you should say his name because there's power in that or whatever. But there is, you know, power in in the names. I mean, in, in World on Fire, when the um, the meat grinder in the pencil skirt gets Mrs. Cardenas's name wrong, mm. that is a play for power. But when Foggy corrects her and uses the name correctly, he has more power, you know? Um, Matt has a secret identity. They only know him as the masked man. You know, Wilson Fisk is known as your employer. Um, this kind of thing, I think, is really interesting. And we keep going into, like, names and identity. Um, and then we kind of like move from that you know seeing this reflective like no name space for both uh for both matt and wilson fisk into this reflective 
you know, reflective thing between them. You know, he's talking with Vladimir, you know, and they have this whole like psychological discussion about what, you know, you're just like us. You think you're that different. You'll get there sooner or later. We all do men like us, you know, like they're Vladimir sees them as exactly the same. And, you know, Matt is holding on to I don't kill people. Mm-hmm. But that's like the only distinction that he has you know, between them. He's well, like, well, I don't kill people. That's you know? not really fair. Matt is not yeah. trafficking in human lives. No, no, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I mean, when he defends himself, that's the only thing he says. He doesn't say anything else. He just says, I don't kill people. And it feels to me like he's, that's the only thing he's holding on to is this is the one thing that makes me not as bad as them. Yeah. It's, it seems a little early to draw that specific line. Like, Things like, mm-hmm. well, I don't buy and sell human lives probably would have been a better defense in this moment. Right. I mean, he's got he's got lots of them. But what I find interesting is that he doesn't look at any of those things. It's just that he doesn't kill people. To, to me, that feels like this is the line that as long as he stays on this side of that, that he's going to be OK. Yeah. You know, like that's what he holds on to. We did have a conversation with Claire where she asks in the previous episode, so lawyer by day vigilante by night how's that work out and his answer is not very well yeah you know i mean yeah like he is a man in crisis his lives Mm -hmm. do not mesh at all and so yeah i guess he just drew the biggest darkest black line and he's like all right as long as i'm not just casually murdering people i'm still okay right right you know i'm not i'm not killing people i mean what he's doing is you know is is questionable he's got a lot i mean this whole like torturing people for information stuff i'm i'm really over it like i'm really done with that yeah you know Um, and it's the same thing every time it's like oh here i broke your arm boy what a shame here let me bend it the wrong way while i ask you for a name and you're not going to give me that name okay let me break your other arm (laughs) like yeah it's the same thing over and over and over again i'm getting like you know we're in episode six now and I'm, i'm a little bit tired of it so um so at this point i'm just like okay let's just keep going with this and hopefully we'll we'll vary this up a little bit now i'm going to point out to you a thing that i talked about in our last episode Uh about how daredevil is not a detective yes right he's not an investigator he's not good at that stuff right right and i'm definitely tired of him torturing for information i get it i'm with you Mm mm-hmm also because we have a lot of like real world evidence that that just doesn't work exactly yeah so can we stop normalizing that in our fiction like listen we've seen 24 it's fine exactly get it it's it's yeah it's bad Mm -hmm. and you'll note that he gets a lot further when he takes blake's phone right right like oh a clue you know Mm -hmm. and and i think now this is a thing that we may or may not ever get into but frank miller you know, kind of defined the daredevil that we're getting in this series. Mm -hmm. And he also defined a certain era of Batman, right? Mm -hmm. And there are some parallels here, but this is not in in an effort to like redeem one and damn the other, but Mm -hmm. it is sort of the difference between when a guy starts out in the morning with a plan. Yeah. Right? And that's Batman. Batman has plans. Okay. And Daredevil is a guy who just doesn't, you mm-hmm. know? And I really actually like this contrast. Like, it makes for really interesting stories for these people who are, in many ways, kind of surface level similar. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
<laughs> and it's bearing itself out, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think he's going to stop beating nine shades of hell out of everybody because that's a daredevil thing. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. But we could definitely get to a point where he figures out that investigations are more than just beating nine shades of hell out of people. Yeah. And I think that, like, it's one thing. Like, I don't mind that he's fighting when he's got a bunch of guys and he's got to get in somewhere he's got to save somebody like when he was fighting the guys to to save the kid like okay you know like the fights I don't mind like I get bored by them but you know I don't mind the the fighting Mm -hmm. but it's the it's always it's I think for me it's that it's the same thing it's always you know here I'm gonna hurt you give me a name no then I'm gonna hurt you some more give me a name no and then he hurt you know and then he gets the name and or he doesn't or whatever but it's always the same it's always asking for a name like even if they just varied up the kind of information tell me where the thing (laughs) is like I would be like all right at least there's something different but it's always give me a name give me a name give me eventually you're gonna have all their names You know, you can set up a dinner party with little cards and everything and that'll be fine. (laughs) But like, do something different with it, you know? This is a really interesting point because the part of this you like uh is the idea that names or the keeping back of them have power. Yeah. And, And so from that perspective, it is very on theme for him to always be looking for the next name in the chain. Right. But it's so repetitive. It's repetitive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, um, well, you can just kind of watch them winning and losing at the exact same time right there. Yeah. Well, and of course, when he gets on the phone with Fisk, right? He's like, say your, or I guess it was a walkie talkie. Say, like, he says, um, say your name. And then, and then Matt says, you first. Right? Yeah. You know? And I mean, I like that. And then Wilson Fisk says, you and I have a lot in common. You know, and he starts mm-hmm. drawing these parallels the same way that Vladimir did. Right. And I think that, like, I really like all of that stuff. You know, I thought it was really cool. This idea that, that Vladimir's like, we're not so different. And then Fisk is like, you and I have a lot in common. You know, we both mm-hmm. want to save this city. We both want to do this stuff. And all I need you to do is kill that asshole, you know, who's done terrible things, right. has trafficked in children, you know. And Matt, the only thing is I'm not a killer. You know, I'm not a killer. Mm-hmm. I'm not a killer. And he keeps saying that over and over and over again, you know, and through this whole thing with Vladimir again, he's looking for a name. And I do. I like the the power and the significance of names. It's just that that repetitive beat is getting to be a little bit much, you know? No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But I like that. I like that we're putting so much weight on this, this like philosophical significance of names and identity, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and who, like who he is when he's Matt Murdock and who he is when he's Daredevil, you know, and they haven't even named, we're calling, I'm calling him Daredevil just so that like when we're talking about it in the summaries, it's clear which mode he's in, you know? Yeah. Um, totally. Nobody's named him. He's just the, the man in black or the masked man or whatever. Like he doesn't have a name. He doesn't have an identity for that part of himself. We're so close. It's so undefined. Oh, okay. So daredevil's going to happen. Well, Um, no, but at the, uh, it's after this experience that they start referring to him as the devil of hell's kitchen, the devil of hell's kitchen. Right. Right. So, um, and again, like, you know, name and identity and who are you, you know, what kind of man are you like all this stuff I think is great. I like the fact that he is really struggling 
with whether or not he's a good man. Yes. You know, like, I think I like that. I like that when Vladimir says we're not that different, when Fisk says, you know, we have a lot in common, that this hits him right where he lives, you know? Um, Vulnerability, you know, as I teach in my classes, is always about, like, usually one of four things, fear, identity, love, and shame. And whenever I talk about identity with my students, they're always like, well, I don't really understand what that means. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like his not, he's not sure that he's a good man. Mm -hmm. He's doing this stuff because he's obsessed. And I think he literally cannot stop himself. Well, in fear and shame. He has to do it. Pile in on Mm -hmm. that. Because Mm -hmm. the reason his identity is at stake is because he's afraid they're right. And he's ashamed of what he does, even though it helps people. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very, very cool. And we've got a lot of thematic work going on here. So I really like, I like this as the second half of the first part. You know, I like it. His whole thing with uh, with Vladimir. And hey, one of the times when he was torturing him, he was at least trying to save his life with the road Yeah, fire. okay. I don't feel like it's fair to declare that as torture. <laughs> because he was legitimately well, trying to save his life. He was legitimately trying to save his life, but he also wasn't trying to do it like gentle, like Claire. I love, oh, but I also loved that though. When he was on the phone with Claire. Man. I love when he's on the phone with Claire. Claire is so badass. I love her so much. And she's talking to him and he says, well, I need to know how to save this guy's life. But before Claire helps him, he says, you should know that it's Vladimir. Yeah. So he tells her and leaves the choice up to her about whether or not she wants to help. I like that he did that. Instead of lying to her, not telling her, manipulating her or whatever, he says, it's Vladimir. Like, he needs this thing from her. But he's placing her agency above that. Mm-hmm. And it's such a small moment. But God, I liked it. No, that is beautiful. And it's followed mm-hmm. right away by Claire basically saying, it's going to hurt and I'm fine with that. Yeah. But then when she hears the scream... She blanches. She's actually not as fine with it as she thought she was, which is really Mm -hmm. a great beat for Claire. We know a lot about Claire now. Mm -hmm. Like, we know about who Claire is on the inside from, you know, a relatively small amount of screen time compared to your Matt's, your Foggy's, your Karen's. Yeah. And it's so efficiently done with Claire. Mm -hmm. You know, everything we've done with Claire has been so wonderfully written, um, really efficient. You know, we get such a strong sense of who she is. Um, I love her. I think she's fantastic. And I love that he showed her that respect and he let her make that choice rather than like doing it and then saying, oh, by the way, it was Vladimir whose life you just saved, you know? Mm hmm. So I love that she gives him that he gives her that choice. Um, So I think it's really it's really cool. But his like whole, you know, I mean, I I guess maybe it's not fair to call it torture when he's, you know, using the flair. I'm just saying, but it kind of did really want to save his life. Is he's well, he's saving his life because he wants to beat a name out of him, you know, and and also this thing with Vladimir. Like, I actually really enjoyed Vladimir in this episode mm-hmm. and I thought it was fun. And I like the way these two kind of, you know, connected and talked to each other, you know, like enemies, you know, absolute enemies, you know, um, but yet stuck working together right. and all that. I, I really enjoyed all that. But Vladimir... Vladimir, I mean, my God, the guy got blown up in a building, then attacked by 
uh, by Matt, who hopped on him. Then he gets shot by a cop. Then he's back in the building. He's getting the shit beat out of him. He's bleeding out. He gets, and then he still gets up and starts like you know fighting. And it just after a while, I was like, okay, there's just a point where you got to give it up. <laughs> like, Vladimir, how are you still walking? And I guess adrenaline does something for you, but it's just, it seemed a bit much. Well, he's also Russian. Oh, okay. I mean, no, so that's the thing. That's worth something. <laughs> Listen, that entire country has mm-hmm. a reputation for being tough as three coffin nails because they're like, oh, do, do you want my arm? I will actually cut off my finger to save my arm. You know. Oh my god. Um, I mean, it was it was uh, they beat the Nazi army by burning mm-hmm. their own farms and just moving back and waiting for winter. I mean, you know. Yeah. And the yeah. Red Mafia. Has a very serious. Again, I t- I told you there was a uh, a time when my wife and I were sort of dilettante yeah, reading about the, the red mob, and they are <laughs> again just the hardest hard of hard things. So wow, I, I'm, okay, I'm not going to well, say you know. any of that makes it realistic, but it's um in character, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, we saw him in the gulag. The human body can only like take so much. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, so after a while I was like, oh, come on. You know, I mean like the, the whole thing where he's like pretending to die and I'll give you the name. I'll give you the, and then he hits him in the I head know. with his own head. I mean, come on, Vladimir. But through the whole thing, this is not how I die. This is not how I die. Yeah. This is not how I die. And then at the end he pulls that Butch and Sundance shit. This and I is was how. Like, All right. Yeah. Yeah. This is how I go out in a blaze of gunfire. You know, um, it's uh, Vladimir was, was really kind of cool and i like when he was calling matt out on his stuff he was like then you put on this mask you got in a cage with animals animals don't stop fighting not until one of them is dead Mm -hmm. you know like i mean clearly matt's gonna kill somebody before the end of the season and he's gonna cross that line i don't know what that's gonna do to him um but it's it's neat the way that they're kind of building this up and and these these men are having this like you know these these like mortal enemies are having this philosophical discussion about identity and purpose you know yeah yeah (laughs) i think it's pretty cool and it's not a contrived situation it wasn't we want them to have a talk so let's Mm -hmm. make up an excuse for them to go to dinner like a situation was created where these things could happen while the action continued and escalated Mm-hmm. You know, because the yeah. rest of the yeah. world didn't stop. So these two could have a chat. Things got worse. Exactly. You know. Exactly. They were just stuck in it. And, you know, and I like in the end, they're working together to get out, get into the tunnels, you know, as the cops are coming in. When the cops come in and they find their buddy, little Sullivan. <sighs> yep. And they're like, and as he's still alive, they're calling him thing. Yeah, Sullivan's dead. And he's like, what? <laughs> And just slit in his throat that right was there. Cold. Yeah. That was cold, man. Well, he's a clean cop. God. He's not gonna get on yeah. the program. That was tough. This was a good episode, and I liked the way we moved through it. I liked the way that we got this reflection between Vladimir and Matt and Matt and Wilson Fisk, you know? Mm-hmm. Wilson Fisk asking him to kill Vladimir, you know, um, was such an interesting kind of thing. Cause it's, of course, this is the one line. It's not even about Vladimir. It's like, if, if Matt crosses that line, he's gone. Right. You know, or at least that's how he feels. Right. Yeah. I think he feels that this is the only thing that separates him from them. And so it was such an interesting thing out of all, cause when he calls him and I'm like, why are you calling him? 
you know, but he did have a purpose. Like, mm-hmm. I was so glad they had a purpose because usually it's just so that the bad guy can, you know, sit there and, and, you know, give his little villainy monologue and that's it. And he's just calling to say hi, you right. know, but he was calling with a specific, you know, purpose. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Everybody's agenda progresses, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it works out really, really nicely, and I like it. And then, you know, of course, like, they shoot the the bad cop. It's cold, like, the stuff that's happening. He's got it all set to blame it on Matt. And, I mean, this is a nice – and we're at this point, this is uh, episode six, you know, so we're in the midpoint of the season, Mm -hmm. and we're escalating everything, and now everybody thinks that, you know, he's the one who's doing this stuff, that he's the bad guy. Um, You know, I love all of that. I thought it was great. It really exploits – the concept of a masked vigilante right Mm -hmm. like we know that matt more or less you know has a good reason to keep his identity secret it's not as clean and pure a reason as say spider-man right right Mm -hmm. but it's not a bad reason it makes sense you know he Mm -hmm. this way i help everybody with all my skills you know kind of right Mm -hmm. but it really does leave you wide open for exploitation when the villain is prepared to just do massive collateral damage and then pin it on you because you can't defend yourself. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's very, very cool. So we have these two, like two parts of a, of basically one story, which is world on fire and condemned, um, really nicely written, really nicely directed. We go through all this and then we take a moment for stick. In Stick, Foggy and Karen hang out with Matt at the office, and Matt jokes with Foggy about hot girls despite the fact that he spent the night before having multiple buildings fall down on him. Secret identities are a bitch to maintain, y'all. Meanwhile, Owsley and Nobu meet in a parking garage because that's where all the legit business meetings are being held these days. Nobu has a shipment coming in, and Owsley is on to him. He suggests that he and Nobu look out for each other because what happened to the Russians with the decapitation and all the explosions was not comforting. Nobu says no deal and runs off leaving Owsley alone in the parking garage daredevil comes up behind Owsley all scowly and threatening and asks for names Owsley plays dumb and daredevil tries to hit the smarts back into him but gets distracted by the sound of a stick Owsley tases daredevil who's apparently feeling all those buildings and an old blind guy named stick finds him and mocks him a few flashbacks later we learn three things stick found matt when he was young and trained him to use his gifts He abandoned Matt about 20 years ago, and he is an unapologetic asshole. Matt and Stick go back to his place and catch up. And by catch up, I mean Matt's hurt and offended by Stick's abandonment, and Stick mocks Matt for going soft. You know, boy bonding. Turns out Stick's on a mission to stop something called Black Sky, and once Matt gets Stick's solemn vow that he won't kill anyone, he agrees to come help out. Meanwhile, Karen's on a mission of her own to figure out what's going on, and after a visit with Ben in which he tells her she's going to get herself killed, she gets some intel from Mrs. Cardenas, and as she's leaving the building, gets jumped by the very street hoods Mrs. Cardenas just told her about. Karen, Matt's blind and he could have seen that coming. The hoods threaten her, but then Foggy comes out of nowhere with a baseball bat, and between that and her pepper spray, they get away. She takes him to visit Ben and his serial killer wall, and they all stare at it and rub their chins thoughtfully. At the docks, it turns out Stick's mission was to ruin Nobu's day by killing a kid chained up in a shipping container. Daredevil deflects the kill shot, but while he's fending off Nobu's guys, Stick kills the kid anyway. 
Back at Matt's apartment, they fight, pretty much destroying the place, but eventually Matt gets the upper hand and Stick finally respects him. You know, a little. He leaves and Matt cleans up, eventually finding the sentimental gift bracelet he made for Stick all those years ago, when he still believed in parental love and stupid shit like that. Stick was written by Douglas Petrie, who you chipperish listeners will know as one of Lonnie's all-time favorite TV writers. It was directed mm-hmm. by Brad Turner. Petrie will be back to write six more episodes of Daredevil across the first two seasons, which delights Lonnie to no end, and I <laughs> have mixed feelings because I've seen season two. Now, this is the only episode directed <laughs> by Turner, though. Right. So, okay, Doug Petrie, obviously, I was very excited for this episode. It is possible, and I'm going to have you check me, it is possible that my disappointment is just because when your expectations are really high, sometimes, you know, you just end up disappointed. And I love Doug Petrie, and I think that I see some of the stuff that I love about him in this episode, like the the dialogue work and, and all of that. Um, but I don't know. I really didn't care for this episode much. So what do you think about it? Well, let me ask you yes. how you're evaluating it. Because I think there are two different ways we could evaluate it and the score changes dramatically. I think part of it for me is that, um, you know, we got all those flashbacks again and I don't care. Like the flashbacks are just not interesting to me. They're not really like part of the current story and I don't really care. And it's one thing to have a little bit of a flashback. We have tons of them in mm-hmm. here. It's more flashback than present day. It is more flashback than present day. And and the flashbacks are just not that much happening, except for this guy comes into Matt's life, is a complete asshole, trains him in martial arts, and then abandons him, you know? But um, I, I didn't care for that. The um, the story with Nobu, you know, getting this shipment with this kid in a shipping container and I didn't quite follow exactly what that was about or why we needed to kill the kid or what the hell was going on with that. Um, and on top of it, we've got daddy issues, you know, part two, right? As if we didn't have enough with his dad before. Now we've got this second run at it. And the character of Stick is... I mean, he's obviously, like, as a human being, just a complete hot mess. Like, he's terrible. But oh, yeah. as a character, he's he's overcooked. It's too much. Like, we're we're working this the dough on this character just too much. And there's nothing there, but it almost feels like an affectation of assholery. Like, you are correct. Yeah. So so to me, like, I didn't. I didn't buy Stick as a as a character. He was just he was way overworked, way overdone, um, and almost to the point of caricature. You know, the the caricature yeah. of an asshole. You know, he's he's toxic masculinity plus pure asshole coming together. You know, and it's just uh, it's just too much. Like there's nothing real in this character i mean it's not that you can't be a bad guy that you can't be an asshole but like there's nothing there's nothing real and i get you know this is the guy who trained matt this is the guy who who taught him how to handle like all the sensory information that he was getting overwhelmed with you know um so i can see him you know being bonded to this guy but at a certain point like you know he's such an asshole He's so awful that I don't understand why Matt didn't just walk away the second he showed up. Okay, let me return to that, the daddy okay. issues part. Because, yes. because I do, mm-hmm. the, the kind of two broad ways that I want to score this are either as a piece of Daredevil as a whole, 
the the season of Daredevil or as its uh-huh. own unit. Okay. Because it's really a break from the main plot overall. It is. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. you will perhaps not be surprised to know that this is the first inklings that we have of the meta plot that uh-huh. runs through the various and sundry Netflix series. Okay. Mm-hmm. To greater and lesser extents. Like the volume goes way high on some and way down on others. But okay. this is the first taste of the meta plot. So your whole, mm-hmm. wait, what? Is yeah. accurate. That is okay. good. Now, so like as a part of the whole, I don't feel it's great. Right? Now, yeah. sometimes I think you do have to have like these breathers because we just had a really big bunch of escalation. You know? Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So a concept of a breather is not like a bad idea to me, but this one is just such a hard left turn in a lot of ways with all the flashbacks and all the stuff that never gets explained. Yeah. And and they don't do a great job of demonstrating to you that it's supposed to not be explained yet. You just have to trust that. Yeah, the breather episode isn't a problem for me. Like, you know, I mean, that's fine. Like, you need that at this point in the se- in the season, and I get it, and that's okay. Like, I don't mind that. I, flashbacks, obviously, not my favorite thing. Um, but all of it together, I think, just not to mention that we're going to talk about Karen in a little bit, who's also <laughs> yeah. really annoying. And then we've got this weird-ass coda at the end, which is so, again... Everything is overcooked. If they had just turned the heat down a little bit on some of this stuff, you know, and not made it so incredibly in your face, I think I would have liked it a little bit more, but it was just so incredibly overdone for me. And I was, I just could not care about it. Here is the part of stick as another failed father figure that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. We mentioned how, despite Matt's dad being, air quotes, the type, we got yes. like 0% toxic masculinity from that guy. Right. Mm-hmm. We get 99.9% toxic masculinity from Stick. And the 0.9% right. is actually circles back around to toxic masculinity because when he's nice to Matt, <laughs> it's to set him up yeah. for more abuse. Right. And I think, I think we are supposed to not like Stick. He is supposed to be abusive. Like he is indoctrinating Matt. And yes. and therefore, mm-hmm. when we do get the nice lines, like the lines where he gives some props to mm-hmm. Matt, hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him, help him up, hit him some more, you know? So, I mean, yeah. I mm-hmm. don't I don't disagree that it's that the whole thing is just like way overdone, but yeah, if they just turned it down a little bit and and so we would go, "Oh, he's like an abusive monster and the 10-year-old can't tell." Right. Concept, I'm fine with all of it. It's yeah. really execution. You know, like there's that moment where he's, you know, in the apartment, he's halfway across the apartment, he flicks the beer cap off and it ricochets off right. like 12 things and lands perfectly in the garbage. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that is the about. metaphor for the like, whole episode. It's over <laughs> done. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly the whole episode is ricocheting off of 12 things and then landing <laughs> in the garbage. You know, like it's just, it, Perfect. All of it. Perfect. So overdone. Yes. Ricochet off 12 things, land in the garbage. If we did cutesy episode titles, that would be the episode title for this Listen Up A-Holes. <laughs> that would be the thing. Right. Yeah. No, it's just it's just way, way too much. We got that opening scene, right? Okay. 
he's got this, you know, sword. He's, he, you know, meets the Japanese guy, slices off his hand, which, by the way, okay, look, I know this isn't a documentary. I get it. That's fine. I've never cut off anybody's hand. But you know what I have done? I have tried to cut a leg off a turkey before. And I'll tell you something. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's, you don't slice it and it goes through it like a hot knife through butter. Like, this whole thing is ridiculous. And that's, again, you know, it's turned up to 11. It's just, it's just too much. Lonnie, would you like a terrible history lesson about swords? No. (laughs) I mean, it's a good history lesson. It's on point. Reality is no defense for fiction. If it took you out of it, it took you out of it. Reality is no defense for fiction. However, I will tell you that classically made katana Mm -hmm. were built to cut through body parts just like that. No. And that they would actually be tested on human beings Eh! in order to make sure that they were up to the challenge. Like like cadavers, though, right? No, condemned criminals. Oh, God. But, but for more modern things, if you have ever seen a sword demonstration where they cut through the tatami mats. Yeah. Like wet tatami mats are said to have much the same like resistance as human limbs. Oof. And that's why they test it or work with tatami mats. All right, fine. I take it back. But still. I'm just, no, here. Now, here's where I put, here's where I bounce that off 12 things and put it in the garbage. Right. This motherfucker's name is Stick. Yeah. What's he got a sword for? What does he have a sword for? And he has those two sticks and he has the stick that's his cane. Yeah. I mean, that's This cool. is your Find introduction that. to the guy named Stick. Right. Here's a sword. What's he doing what? with a bow and arrow? What the hell is that about? Uh, more mystical martial arts nonsense, but I won't go into this one. Okay. All right. All of it, all of it to be like, again, it's, it's bouncing off 12 things into the garbage. It's just too much it's over yeah. over done you know um so like that's too much then we've got karen oh karen oh god here's the thing she's in that scene with ben right and she's talking to him and she's like you know we got to do this we got to you know whatever they're talking about with the mystery and he's and he does this whole paternal thing that i just hate you know that that men do with women all the time which is like this if anything happens to you it's going to be on me you know, because I'm the yeah. man and you're just a girl, like a kitten that you let loose in traffic, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, for fuck's sake. That's she... actually pretty on point for Karen, though. Well, uh, here, this is my whole argument, right? So we have him say that to her, and I'm like, oh, God, she is a full-grown woman. Yeah, she's an idiot, but if she wants to be an idiot, that's not your fault. She makes her own decisions. She has her own agency. Let her do whatever the hell she wants. It's not on you. Stop being like that, right? And then we have this whole thing where she goes and she visits Mrs. Cardenas, and she gets the information, and then, of course, she immediately gets attacked outside. She's got her pepper spray and everything, but then Foggy comes out of nowhere with a baseball bat. Right. And drives these guys off. She sprays the other guy in the face. Um, And then at that moment, I'm like, Foggy, you know, he's following her around the city, you know, like with a baseball bat, with a baseball bat. But like, while, like, you know, she is a full grown person. If she wants to be an idiot and get herself, you can't go see Mrs. Cardenas at three in the afternoon. You can't take an extended lunch break and go ask her then. You've got to go at night. You have no clients. Right. You know, when you're just walking go. outside, like just do it. Meet her at a Starbucks for crying out loud. She needs to get out of the apartment, <laughs> you know? Um, so all of this stuff, like, it's just like, it's just, it's so annoying. And then I was annoyed with Foggy. And then at the same time, I'm like, she is, she's a kitten loose in traffic. She's so stupid. 
You know, that like there is no way to protect her. And it's not their job to protect her. She's a grown woman. But I don't know. I just I found it all irritating from every angle, from Ben's angle, from Karen's angle, from Foggy's angle. It was irritating in every possible way. I want to read Karen as more naive Mm -hmm. than stupid. Mm hmm. But they don't make it easy because it's pretty much just blundering around waving your arms. And she was pretty conniving with Foggy's feelings just a yeah. couple episodes ago. Yeah. So she's, you so, know. Yeah. I mean, I think they want naive, but I'm not sure that it works. I think dumb is unfortunately more applicable. Yeah. She just seems dumb. And that's the thing. Like, I hate dumb characters it drives me crazy it's the you know like the one thing i can't stand with the exception of uh jason mendoza on the good place who i absolutely adore but that's a comedy so maybe it's a little (laughs) bit different but um but i mean yeah like i just i hate the stupidity from her i i hate the um i hate the paternalistic stuff from the guys around her like the the way she inspires this you know like i have to protect you like a baby wandering down the street with pianos falling from you know windows and stuff it's just it's i don't know it's all it's all a bit much for me. And so this whole thing with her getting attacked by these guys and going to see Miss Cardenas and then being by herself you know, like Foggy's right there. You're going to do something dangerous. You know, take him with you. And then she goes and brings him to Ben's office. And Ben, I believe, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think every single scene between the two of them has been go home, lock your doors, don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, of course, she doesn't listen to him. And the thing is with Ben, like, she turned it over. She did the right thing. She turned it over to a journalist. She took what she knew. She turned it over to a professional, a professional who has years of experience covering exactly this kind of thing. And journalism is the way that you shed the light on this stuff and then the cockroaches scatter. Like, that's what you do. You are not a superhero, Karen. You're not even a regular hero, Karen. You know? So... I, I'm just like, go buy a bath bomb, go home to a locked apartment and just get some wine and have an evening, you know, but like stay out of it. And then she brings Foggy in to go and check out things with Ben. And Ben was like, I tell you, I gave you one instruction a million times. Don't <laughs> tell anyone, you know. For God's sakes, woman, we don't talk about Fight Club. Exactly. Honestly. Exactly. She's like, what's the first rule of Fight Club? Here's my friend Foggy. You know? So, yeah, it just, it was really, really irritating. So, like, everything in this episode irritated me, including that Coda at the end, again, turned up to 11. The guy, you know, mysterious man, covered in scars, deep voice, enigmatic motivations. Will he be ready when the doors open? Whatever. Like, whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They really... They might as well just put a giant neon sign above that scene that says meta plot and just, oh, okay, cool. So I can just go ahead and skip to the next one. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I I don't care. And then in this episode, not to bring it back to Karen, but Mrs. Cardenas says, Foggy's obviously in love with you. And Karen's like, oh, uh, you know, like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You knew. You knew he was in yeah, love with you. Yeah, it's not very genuine at all. No, it's, it's, all, it's all really bad. So... <laughs> So stick as much as I was looking forward to it because it was written by Doug Petrie and I love Doug Petrie so, so much. It just disappointed me. I was not, I did not enjoy this episode. Oh, no, it's totally fair. I mean, I I like some of the thematic stuff Mm -hmm. with stick being the other failed father figure. Mm -hmm. Like, like you mentioned how much you would hate it if it was one moment that turned Matt into the guy he was. And I was like, just wait, there's many moments. 
Right. There's this many things one? that have contributed to this. And, yeah. you know, and that's if they had just dialed it down a little bit, you know, no, just I know. a little bit. Now, for my comic book reading a-holes. Yes. I will tell you that, again, stick and the flavor of this series is very much tied into what Miller was doing on Daredevil back in the 80s. And no one has ever accused Frank Miller of being subtle. Right. And I don't mean like Jack Kirby unsubtle, Mm -hmm. but just like, hey, did you see this thing? Wham. Did you see this thing? Wham. (laughs) Wham. I mean. Well, you know, and that's Do you understand how brutal this is? Brutal. Brutal. You know. But the whole thing about adaptation is that you can fix what's wrong with the source material or even that you take the source material, but you make it into something different and the thing is like in none of the other episodes are we this like in your face dialed to 11 you know i mean i guess we are a little bit with the violence but yeah i don't know like i just i just think that and with all the really deft storytelling and and writing that we've had up until now this is just too much and so close it could have been really good i don't disagree like of course and and I almost feel like this is right on the edge of spoiler territory. Yeah. But let's just say that once Stick showed up in the comic books, Mm -hmm. we had already been prepped with the existence of mystical ninjas. That's Uh all I'm saying. (laughs) We clearly have not had any mystical ninjas on Daredevil to prepare us for this level of nonsense. Right. right. Now, I have no idea where they would have stuck it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's also kind of like, then maybe don't do this episode. Like, look. Or There's a bunch of season two that's going to be kind of a tire fire. Put it there. Right. You know. It, dial it down a little bit. That's fine. All right. So now that I have spent the last like 15 minutes tearing apart stick, we'll just let that go. <laughs> Joshua, what's your favorite part of these three episodes? Okay. My favorite part is the warehouse standoff with mm-hmm. the police outside and Daredevil and Vladimir on yeah. the inside. Mm-hmm. I like it for the thematic stuff that's going on. I like the two different hero-villain conversations. Mm-hmm. I like how it reminded me that so much of Daredevil is very much tied to Miller's work on Batman Year One, mm-hmm. but just smaller scale. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like it's a warehouse standoff instead of an entire abandoned apartment building. Right. The, I won't spoil Batman Year One for anybody. It's it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's just a lot of parallels here. And I was just like, oh, yeah, the guy who wrote this stuff was working on some stuff, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made it through all of these hands and eyes mm-hmm. and writers and directors to give me something that still had, you know, some of that Frank Miller flavor okay. back when that Frank Miller flavor didn't turn my stomach. <laughs> So I like what it's doing in this in this series, and uh-huh. I really like what it did for me as kind of a fan of the bigger picture. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, I got to say my favorite part was the guy singing in the back of the car, the fight through the windshield, like that whole twirly thing. I really it's I strong. liked that. Yeah, it was really, really good. And that, you know, old Chinese folk song, the gentleness, the softness of that contrasting with everything else that was so hard in that episode or in that scene um, was just beautifully done. I really liked it. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. 
Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is Listen Up, A Holes. This episode of Listen Up, A Holes was brought to you by Chipperish producer Alyssa from Dallas. Alyssa supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a result gets to go out for ice cream with a mean old man. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions and makes Listen Up, A Holes possible. I just want to be clear I'm not the mean old man that no. she's talking about. <laughs> no. But to find out how you too can become a Listen Up A-Holes producer, visit the Patreon links in the show notes. Producer level support options are available at both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media. You can also show your support by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. Links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Daredevil Season 1, Episodes 8 through 10. Until then, masked vigilantes, crazy Russians, we're getting our stun gun out of storage. Stick was written by Douglas Petrie, who is one of Lonnie's all-time. I got you. I got you, girl. I recovered. Did you hear that? You were great. I just interrupted. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm pretty impressed with myself. (laughs) Two words ahead, and I saved it. All right. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Daredevil Season 1 episodes. Hold on. Is that right? Yeah, Eight, I just nine, changed ten. it. Okay. I just changed oh, it. Oh, you yeah. did? <laughs> this time I screwed up you being seamless and smooth. Look, we're a team. <laughs>